Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Anglo-Saxon England, Series 1, Episode 31, or Episode 21 in Old Money. I thought I might mention that the content of this episode is exactly the same as the corresponding episode in the History of England, and that I have restored it here merely for the sake of completeness and ease of listening to the Anglo-Saxon England feed. Shortly, you will also notice a change in the quality of recording, since the original was recorded back in the mists of time, when small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were small, furry, and from Alpha Centauri. This week we're going to meet the Normans, since we're going to spend a lot of time in each other's company. So, 
What are they like, these Normans? But my advice would be that if you really want to know what the Normans were like, you simply need to go and look at Durham Cathedral. It completely sums them up. From the outside, it's massive, impressive, brutal and dark. On the inside, it's just the most stunning of all England's cathedrals, in my humble opinion. And of course you've got the cathedral's ideal partner in the castle next door, and you can believe they work together. If you've not been to Durham, I can heartily recommend the trip. You won't be disappointed. The title of today's episode comes from a contemporary chronicler called Geoffrey of Malaterra. He noted that the Normans were eager for gain and dominion, and basically just people that were difficult to ignore. So let's look at where they came from and how they got into this position. As the name suggests, the Normans were originally Vikings and their presence in Normandy was very much part of the Viking Age. You may remember that period of reconstruction and defence when Alfred in England had come back from the brink and was constructing his boroughs in anticipation of further attacks. Meanwhile, one of the Danish armies had left for the continent. But in 885, they joined a larger contingent of Vikings raiding down the River Seine, led by a Danish underking called Siegfried. One of the other contingents was led by someone called Rollo, who would have been close to 40 years old at the time. Rollo's origin is fiercely disputed, Norwegian or Dane, we don't know. When the war ended with Siegfried accepting tribute from the French king, Rollo and his followers stayed over there, and they were sent to Harry Burgundy, which of course was not part of the French kingdom at that point. Later, Rollo returned and raided the area now known as Normandy, and then in 911 he launched an attack on Paris. The walls defeated him and he moved on to besiege Chartres. But by this stage, the Bishop of Chartres had assembled his own team in the form of the Duke of Burgundy and the Count of Dijon, and in July 911 they defeated Rollo and his army. The French king, Charles the Simple, was well aware that this did not mean the end. Northern France had been continually hammered by Viking raids, and he saw here an opportunity to be rid of two problems in one go. So he offered Rollo an area of land in Normandy, centred on Rouen, in return for his feudal allegiance to the King of France, his commitment to defend the coast and the banks of the Seine, and for his conversion to Christianity. It's useful at this point, if you don't know Normandy well, to refer to a map I put up on the History of England website. The story of this treaty is a nice illustration of Viking attitudes. Who knows if it's true, but if it isn't, it certainly ought to be. So to conclude the treaty, King Charles offered his foot to be kissed by Rollo in the traditional Carolingian method of swearing fealty. Such a humiliating approach was not at all to Rollo's liking, so he turned to one of his followers and he ordered them to do the foot kissing on his behalf. The warrior he pointed out stepped forward, but rather than going down to the foot's level, he grabbed the royal foot, yanked it up to his mouth and did the required kissing up there. Meanwhile, Charles, of course, was flat on his back and was left in no doubt of the kind of relationship he could expect. For the next 12 years, though, Rollo fulfilled his function faithfully. But in 923, Charles was deposed as King of France by Robert I. Rollo therefore considered his oath to be over and expanded the Norman lands to the west, including key towns such as Lisieux. So Rollo was extremely successful in establishing the basis of a new territory for his followers. He was also very influential in establishing the future direction and culture of the new state because he was determined that the Normans would become more French than the French themselves. He already had a French wife in Popper, but on signature of the treaty in 911, he'd taken the king's daughter Gisela for his wife. He encouraged the use of the French language and for his followers to marry local women. The strategy was remarkably successful and was probably necessary, 
because the evidence suggests that the settlement of Normandy by the Scandinavians in the 10th century was relatively light. There are a few Scandinavian place names that survive in Normandy, and almost no Scandinavian surviving burial sites have been discovered. They undoubtedly became the new lords, but they must have married very freely with the local women. The result was that in the 10th century, Normandy was probably a largely Scandinavian state, but during the late 10th and early 11th century, Normandy acquires its French character and distinctly Norman characteristics. And by the time 1066 comes around, there's little evidence of their Scandinavian past. By then, they've adopted continental military methods, culture and dress. The process of Gallicisation was not entirely without its problems, and after Rollo's son, William Longsword, replaced him as leader in 927, the backlash duly arrived, with many lords rebelling against William. William dealt with the rebellion, then used the opportunity to attack his neighbours in Brittany, no doubt with the ambition of extending the Norman borders still further. William was most successful in extending his kingdom by political means, however. He attached himself to Rudolf, who was king of France up to 936, and in 933, Rudolf rewarded his loyalty with the grant of lands to the west, in the Catentin Peninsula and Avranches. William gained more land in 934 through marriage, but his expansion eventually brought him into conflict with the Counts of Flanders. And in 942, William was ambushed and killed by Arnulf of Flanders. This left Normandy potentially in a major mess. Richard, his son, was just ten at the time, and his career gives a pretty good idea of why the Normans were so formidable. He basically saved the Norman state from extinction, and his courage and resourcefulness earned him the sobriquet of Richard the Fearless. The situation was made more difficult for Richard because he was also not legitimate in the eyes of the French. His mother was the rather unattractively named Sprota, a Breton concubine of William's, who married a miller when, when William died. So the French had an excuse to prevent Richard from succeeding to his lands. Louis IV of France saw his opportunity and he seized Richard and the Norman lands and split them up between his followers. Richard was imprisoned. But four years later, in 946, at the age of just 13, he escaped with the help of the Norman supporters of his father and grandfather, who was clearly in a quite remarkably weak position, so he allied himself to Hugh the Great, the powerful Count of Paris, who had also gained lands in Lower Normandy. He'd chosen well. Hugh the Great's son, Hugh Capet, would become the King of France, and founder of the dynasty that through many peregrinations would end up on the guillotine. His alliance allowed Richard to completely regain his kingdom, and for the next 50 years, Richard ruled successfully and relatively peacefully. His reign is particularly important for the Normans' future, as Normandy begins to develop the characteristics we recognise and associate with them. It's Richard who really encourages the system of knight service and heavy cavalry that's such a feature of Norman England. Richard also encouraged the church, being free with his endowments, and these things began the process of turning Normandy into part of the French rather than Scandinavian world. Richard the Fearless was also the same Norman leader who'd come into conflict with Ethelred about the support he was giving to the Vikings. Eventually they came to an agreement, but Richard was open to the charge of being a Christian leader who'd deal with the pagan Norsemen. This didn't help their image, and it didn't help their assimilation into French society. It clearly worried Richard, because in his later years he commissioned a chronicler called Dudo to write a history of the Normans. This isn't unusual, of course. We saw Alfred the Great do the same thing in England, but it's interesting that the approach Dudo takes is to do everything he can to minimise, excuse and explain away the Scandinavian and pagan elements, even to the extent of claiming that Rollo came to France as a result of a Christian vision. Funnily enough, later writers like William of Jumiège, who wrote after the conquest, do quite the opposite. They seek to stress the difference between the Normans and the French, and so they talk a lot about the Scandinavian past. 
Richard I is also generally attributed as being the first ruler of Normandy to use the title of Duke. In its time, this was a bold and rather pushy move. Duke had a particular significance, a title that was reserved for the most powerful and bestowed by the king alone. Richard was making a powerful statement about using the title without permission, but it reflected that Normandy had now arrived and would not be easily removed from the French map. After Richard I's death in 996, he was succeeded by his son Richard II, called Richard the Good, because of his support for monastic and church reform. Richard was 26 when he came to the throne, and he continued his father's policy of supporting the Capetians, who were now kings of France. Richard II continues the relationship with England, and it continues to be a relationship with a lot of conflict. As the Vikings descended on England, Ethelred was horrified that Richard was allowing them to use Normandy as a base. Of course, Richard was in a bit of a dilemma. The Vikings were not the kind of people you generally said no to. But Ethelred was determined to close the Viking ports, so through lobbying the Pope and by offering to marry Richard's daughter Emma, Ethelred managed to get his agreement. The alliance, though, did not last long, and it's quite possible that Richard supported Svein Falkbeard's invasion in 1013. Nevertheless, he was aware enough of his family responsibilities to give Ethelred and his sons refuge after Svein's victory. Under Richard II, a new nobility emerges in Normandy that makes the final break with the past. During his reign, a large number of men were recruited into the king's army, drawn from other French provinces, such as Brittany, Flanders, Artois and Picardy. It's these families that would become the companions of William in his great adventure, and most of them couldn't trace their past back to the Vikings. Richard II continued and accelerated the work of his father in church support and reform, founding monasteries such as Fécamp. The change in the number of monasteries is dramatic. In the year 1000, there were five monasteries in the duchy. By 1035, there were ten, and by 1066, there were no less than 35. Richard also attracted reformers with a European-wide reputation to Normandy, men such as William of Volpiano, who made sure that Normandy's monasteries followed the Cluniac reforms, which were sweeping throughout Europe. During his reign, the Norman's stunning and superb style of architecture was developed and given expression in the great foundations, such as Jumiège, which takes us back to where we started, and the superb cathedral church at Durham, which of course follows the Norman's version of the Romanesque style. Meanwhile, the Abbey Church of Westminster that Edward the Confessor was to build was to be consciously an attempt to outdo foundations like Jumiège. Richard reigned for 31 years, and on his death the ducal crown passed to his eldest son, also called Richard. But Richard died quickly and mysteriously, and his brother Robert was very strongly suspected of having poisoned him. As a result, Robert acquired the nickname Robert the Devil. And he also acquired the title of Duke of Normandy, so he was probably prepared to live with it. Robert was not a great success as a ruler, but he was certainly a man who knew how to make an impact. His early years were chaotic. He seized church lands and allowed his vassals to do the same. In the end, he did see the error of his ways, after being excommunicated by the Pope, which in those days was a genuinely terrifying punishment. He then spent the rest of his reign giving the land back and endowing new churches, but his lords didn't follow his example. Robert was essentially rubbish at controlling his lords, so those lords took not just land, but also rights and authority that more strictly belonged to the Duke. During his rule, for example, the Norman barons took control of the position of vicomte, the equivalent of the English sheriff. This meant that the Duke had little direct control in the administration or delivery of justice in lands not under his direct lordship. At the same time, his barons managed to make these public offices hereditary, 
and again reduced the Duke's control and patronage. The nobility's freedom aided the process of feudalisation that had started with Richard I. Under Robert's lax control, they were able to build castles, for example, and warring between them encouraged them to build up their own armies and groups of men and best organised their lands to make this happen. All of this was to leave massive problems to William, and they also give the lie to the myth of Norman administrative efficiency. The Anglo-Saxon state was more centralised and efficient, and the king had more control over his barons than the Norman dukes did. The Normans themselves were clever enough to realise this when they arrived, and they took care not to change anything too much in that department. Robert was rather more effective in matters of foreign policy, and he continued the policy of supporting the King of France. When Henry I of France's brother rebelled against him, it was Robert's aid that restored him to the throne. The debt of gratitude Henry owed him was to help William much later in the future. In the short term, Robert was given a crucial parcel of territory called the Vexin. It's worth again going to the website and looking at that map again, because the Vexin will come up again and again over the next couple of centuries. This is because the Vexin is the key to attacking Normandy from Paris, since it's based around the Seine, upriver from the Norman capital Rouen and between Rouen and Paris. Robert's other claim to fame came through his son William, later to be called the Conqueror, but at the time known as William the Bastard. William was born in 1028, the son of Robert and her lever, a Skinner's daughter from Falaise, and his illegitimacy was not to make William's life any easier. But back to the negative, Robert also didn't help his case by deciding to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem when William was only eight. True enough, he did his best to get things sorted before he left, getting all his barons, for example, to swear fealty to William, but all to no avail. It was still going to be chaos. But he clearly had a lot of fun on his holiday to Palestine, sorry, his pilgrimage to Palestine, and by showering churches with gifts and his love of finery, he acquired his other nickname, Robert the Magnificent. But he died at the age of 35 on the return journey in 1035, and his death left William with a whole load of problems. Who knows whether a man's character is set by genetics or environment, but whatever the answer, if environment had an impact, then William was going to be a hard, brutal, ambitious, energetic warrior king, because he was going to need to be. The next 12 years were a constant struggle for survival. Predictably, there were quite a few people who wanted him dead. The Norman barons who wanted to control the regency, and external enemies such as Geoffrey of Anjou, who wanted Normandy for themselves. The various internal threats saw the death of three of William's guardians. A plot in 1040 to kill William failed, but Gilbert of Brion, a son of Richard the Fearless, and one of William's protectors, was killed. As a result, William was forced to accept the regency of Rolf de Wacy, who was probably Gilbert's killer. I suspect that most people in this position would have just given up, but from 1042, at the age of 17, William was assuming personal control, and he was absolutely determined to enforce his will on his barons. The struggle finally came to a head four years later in 1046. The leader of the rebel barons was one Guy of Burgundy, who believed that he had a more legitimate claim to Normandy than did William. In 1046, they organised an ambush in the Catentin trying to kill William, but he escaped. Guy then raised his standard in open revolt, and raised an army of 25,000 men. William realised he couldn't deal with this on his own, and he rode off to the King of France, Henry I. He asked for Henry's protection on the ground that a revolt against his vassals was a revolt against the king himself. And in an act he was later to deeply regret, Henry agreed with William and he raised an army of 10,000. He marched into Normandy 
met up with William's smaller force at Caen and engaged the enemy at the Battle of Valadun. Valadun was to be a decisive battle, but it was really more of a series of skirmishes, which the rebels continuously lost against the better organised royal forces. Then, one of the leading rebel barons, Ralph of Tesson, changed sides. The rebels broke and fled, the revolt was over, and William was well on his way to becoming his own man. Guy of Burgundy himself, however, held out in his castle of Brion in the east until 1050, and his ability to hold out for three years shows the importance of the castle in warfare and the lack of technology available at the time to break down castle walls. During the next 20 years, William gradually rebuilt his position and authority. Essential to this was the continuing loyalty of his two half-brothers, Robert of Mortain and Odo of Bayeux. Both would continue to be staunch supporters throughout his reign as Duke, in the invasion of England and his reign as King of England. The Count of Mortain, attractively described as being one of, and I quote, a heavy and sluggish disposition, came to prominence in 1049, as William got rid of the nobles who had overseen his minority. Odo became Bishop of Bayeux and was again a close and trusted adviser. He would appear in the most unchristian pose wielding a club at the Battle of Hastings and remained close to William until late in his reign when he finally blotted his copybook. In 1051, William and his supporters turned their attention to a southern threat, that of Geoffrey Martel of Anjou. Geoffrey had attacked the county of Maine, which lay directly to the south of Normandy. Go to the History of England website, go to that Counties of Northern France map, and you'll see where Maine is positioned in relation to Normandy. William challenged Geoffrey's claim in two crucial border castles of Alençon and Domfort. William besieged the castles and claimed them for himself. And while he did this, Geoffrey of Anjou backed off and didn't try to raise the sieges. As part of this campaign, a famous incident of the Siege of Alençon illustrates William's character. The inhabitants hung skins from the walls of the castle, taunting William's illegitimacy. Sadly for them, William captured the castle and had the hands of the offending inhabitants cut off. Domfort then surrendered without a fight. In 1053, William strengthened his position when he married Matilda of Flanders. There is a mass of myth and legend associated with this marriage, certainly about the tender courtship. Both of them involve an initial refusal of marriage by Matilda, followed by a bit of physical violence, followed by a change of mind. But there are some rather more solid facts about it. First of all, the main reason for the marriage was no doubt political. No lord could afford to do anything as wasteful as marry for love. So Matilda was the daughter of the Count of Flanders, and the union therefore helped to remove the threat to the Normans' northern border and gain a valuable ally. Another reason was that Matilda was a distant 7th generation descendant of Alfred the Great. William already had a distant claim to the throne of England. His great-aunt was the infamous Emma of Normandy, mother of Edward the Confessor, but in a very, very small way, Matilda probably added to his legitimacy. Whether there was in fact love involved is unknowable, but there were to be no illegitimate children, which is mildly surprising for the time. It's also true that William went to considerable trouble to land the marriage. William and Matilda were fifth cousins, which isn't unusual for noble marriages at the time, but Pope Leo IX had a mind to cause trouble to coerce the Normans into church reform, so he refused to give his assent. William just got married anyway, and a few years later he was able to convince Leo's successor to legitimise the marriage in return for two new abbeys, cheaper the price. Matilda herself was a formidable person in her own right, and it does seem as though she and William made a good team. They shared the same hobbies and interests, as proved when Matilda fitted out a ship for the invasion of England. She was to be regent at times for William in England, 
and was to prove as adept as he was at chucking Saxon thanes off their land. By this time, the King of France, Henry I, was beginning to realise that he'd helped create a monster and had come to the conclusion that he should try to put this particular genie back in the bottle. It's worth noting that Henry I wasn't short on trouble. The lands of the kings of France were at that time at their smallest extent during his reign. So Henry changed horses and teamed up with Geoffrey of Anjou to remove the Norman wart. They invaded twice, the first time in 1054, they appeared to drive all before them, became overconfident and split their army. William's allies fell on one half and defeated them heavily at the Battle of Mortimer, and Henry, preparing to fight William, was forced to run back over the border. The second attempt in 1057 was no more successful. Henry allowed half his army to get cut off by the tide on the coast and had to watch as it was cut to pieces by William. By this stage then, William was 30 and standing on a big reputation for military skill, courage and generally being a hard man who could survive against all odds. And in 1060, things turned decisively in his favour when both his enemies, Henry of France and Geoffrey of Anjou, died. They were replaced in turn by a weakling and a minor and suddenly William had survived 15 years of constant struggle and could go on the offensive. In 1062, he seized the county of Maine and in 1064 completed a successful campaign in Brittany with the help, incidentally, of Harold Goodwinson. He was now fully in control of his borders and of his own destiny. It was around this time also that William began his long association with Lanfranc of Beck. Lanfranc was one of the greatest scholars and teachers of his age and a leading thinker in the great theological debates of the time. He was responsible for bringing another leading thinker, Anselm, to the monastery of Beck, considerably adding to Norman prestige and reputation. He'd reputedly, though unprovably, also been involved in convincing the Pope to allow William's marriage to Matilda, but whether or not this is true, he certainly became a close advisor and supporter to William, and he was a zealous reformer of the Norman Church. Helpfully to William, he also had no trouble with the concept of being anointed to his office by a lay lord. This was to become an issue throughout Europe between the popes and the kings, and one William would have been very grateful to being able to avoid. The period also saw the growth of Rouen as a trade centre, and the consequential growth of ducal revenues. And throughout the period, William was able to regain some, though not all, of the ground that had been lost by his father, and establish more authority over his barons. For example, four Norman families had taken the title of Count, implying also independent powers. William was able to suppress two of these. He did his best to control the barons' castle building and to wrest back some of the public powers the barons had misappropriated. He established a centre of administration. All medieval governments had to wander around their stage rather than establish a big centre of government as we're used to today. This was because communication is so slow and also due to the problems of feeding a large organisation sat in one place. William was no different, but he did create a centre for his family at Caen, including a castle, two monasteries and a market. By 1066, William's powers and administration in Normandy were not unlike those of the English king. There are differences. The Norman duke was not used to issuing legislation, for example, that was the preserve of a king. He had not started a chancery or started the practice of using writs, but basically they were pretty similar. All of this meant that by 1064 William was in a good position to invade England. His frontiers were secure, his enemies weak. He had forged his skills in war over 15 years of struggle. His only real problem was with the fractiousness of his lords, but he was about to bribe all of them with a prize of wealth beyond their wildest dreams. So that's okay then. 
So that brings us pretty much up to date with Normandy. Thanks for listening and have a great week. And I'll see you next week when we'll finally get to that iconic and by now in my mind slightly scary story of 1066. When all of this comes together in one year of drama, incident and consequence. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.